Coming up next, Upstate's Health Link on air. On this week's show, we discuss the after effects of polio, post-polio syndrome. It's a gradual thing. It's not acute like the original polio was. It's slowly progressive over years, but they do get new weakness again. Plus, we'll talk with a polio survivor. I made a miraculous recovery, but I feel that the care that I received at Upstate initially and over time through my physicians made an incredible difference. And the interesting role of the hospital ethics consultant. one of the few consults that anyone can call in. So family member, staff member, physician, nurse, it's uh, open to uh, anyone who wants to discuss what they feel to be an ethical dilemma with their their care or the care of a loved one. Our checkup from the neck up and a selection from our healing muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, medical ethics can be thorny issues. We examine how the most challenging medical ethics questions are addressed today in a hospital setting. Plus, with the Zika virus on everyone's mind, we take a look back at the polio epidemic that hit our country in the 1950s with a personal story. But first, a closer look at polio's after effects, post-polio syndrome. The Centers for Disease Control and its international partners have made significant progress in eliminating polio worldwide over the past 26 years. The number of worldwide polio cases has fallen from an estimated 350,000 in 1988 to only 407 in 2013. That's a decline of more than 99% in reported cases. But that was not so in the 1950s in this country. And today there are individuals still feeling the effects of their bout with this powerful disease. It's been called post-polio syndrome, and here to tell us more about it is Dr. Burke Jubelt. He's professor of neurology as well as professor of microbiology, immunology, and neuroscience at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Jubelt. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Linda. Help us understand, put this in context, give us a sense of polio, kind of the history of where where it started, what we know about it. As far as we know, it actually occurred in ancient times. There, they used to make, uh, you know, stone pictures, pictures in stone, and there are pictures of people who had like a, um, a, a small limb on one side of the body, small leg, uh, that was atrophied and and never developed, and that's what you'd see in the old cases way back then of infantile paralysis, which. The disease was like infantile paralysis up until we started having epidemics in the 18, late 1800s. Um, and when the epidemics <clears throat> hit, did they hit everywhere, I mean, worldwide, or was it located in certain areas? And, and when did they, how frequently did they occur? So the epidemic started like around 1840s, 1850s, and then uh, <clears throat> and, and it, it, it could hit different locations around the world. And then in the United States, we started having epidemics in a little bit in the late 1800s, but primarily the 1900s um, that, it, that epidemics occurred. And they actually peaked in 1952 in the United States when there were over 21,000 cases of paralytic polio, which is a huge, huge number. Um, and can you just help us un- just understand what polio really is? Is it a virus that then strikes and how is it transmitted? Just briefly. Yeah, so polio polio is a virus. It was recognized to be a virus in the late 19, or in the early 1900s, like 1908. There were studies where they isolated the virus from uh, people and injected animals, and they were able to reproduce the disease. Um, the virus is part of their three types of polio virus. It's also part of the antivirus group. There are viruses at Coxsackie virus and Echovirus that usually only cause meningitis, but you may have may have heard of those too. Um, so when the virus basically hits, it's transmitted, again, is it orally transmitted? Is it through air transmission? Right. So it, it's primarily transmitted uh, in the gastrointestinal tract and in, in the stool. 
Um, and so that's how it gets spread from one person to the next. Usually it's little kids who don't wash their hands very well, and they touch silverware and things like that and, and pass it on that way, and that's how the epidemics uh, develop. And the biggest one, as you said, in our country was in the 1950s, and we have currently people today who are alive who have survived that epidemic and who are suffering from this post-polio um, syndrome, which I want to get to in one moment, but help us understand how the vaccine, when it came on the scene, and how it's transformed, because there mm -hmm. have been some new changes as well. Right. I just want to say one other thing about the epidemics, just to explain that. So in ancient times, people were exposed to poliovirus when they were infants, and that's where the term infantile paralysis came from. So there weren't huge epidemics like we had in the 1900s. And um, so what happened is this hygiene improved in the developed countries. People weren't exposed to the virus till they were teenagers or adults. And when you're a teenager or adults, you're much more susceptible to really? disease. To you, the would disease. you would think otherwise, wouldn't yeah. you? Right. But infants, you know, they got exposed shortly after birth and only a small percentage developed any paralysis. And then as you got older, a huge number became paralyzed. And the other thing is that when you were infants, when they would have disease, it usually only involved one extremity. While with older um, you know, teenagers and adults, it oftentimes involved three or four extremities. Uh, One of the most famous cases, as we know, is FDR. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> we had both as legs an adult. involved. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, again, the vaccine. So the vaccine. Yep. The first one was SOC? Was the SOC vaccine, the inactivated polyvirus vaccine, which was started uh, being given in the late in late 1954, in November and December, and then primarily all through 1955, uh, everybody was vaccinated. And did that stem the tide? Markedly decreased mm -hmm. the number. I mean, the number went from, like I mentioned, the 21,000 or so all the way down to we were down to, you know, less than 1,000 cases a year. So it was an enormous breakthrough Correct. scientifically and medically. Correct. But why did the Sabin vaccine then have to be developed. What was the problem with the SOC vaccine? The problem with the SOC vaccine is it didn't provide gastrointestinal immunity, so immunity in your intestines. And because of that, the virus still could be spread from one person to another in the stool. So the SOC vaccine was taken orally, so then it produced immunity in the intestines. Oh, you mean the Sabin vaccine? I'm sorry, the yes, Sabin vaccine. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the oral polio vaccine, the Sabin vaccine. But today we're having an issue. I want to just get to this quickly. There's a change now worldwide. We've obviously, through this, so the, is the Sabin the one that's being used basically worldwide to suppress polio? Correct, correct. There's, and um, and the, the oral polio vaccine then was used like up in the United States up till 2000. Um, and then other, there, in, recently in this poliovirus vaccine switch, which occurred in April of this year, there's like 155 countries in the world that are using the oral polio vaccine. The United States converted to inactivated polio vaccine in 2000, but all these other countries are still using the oral polio vaccine. So the inactivated is still a third type then? You're saying there was the SOC, the Sabin, and now is there's a new type? Well, there's... There's not a new, t I have to explain it. Uh, you know, there's three types of poliovirus. And so there's poliovirus type one, two, and three. And so in the oral polio vaccine, all three are mixed together and given, okay? And so what happened is, is because they were still using oral live vaccine, people started getting cases of polio from the vaccine. Oh. That was in the, especially in the 80s and 90s. And 1980s what, and 90s. Right, yeah. and that's why people have pushed to um, make this polio vaccine switch, which is a, occurred in April of this year. And what was done is that um, the, the type 1 and type 3 viruses were can still continued in the vaccine, and the type 2 was dropped out because it turned out it was the type 2 that was causing most of the paralytic cases. So now there's even a, a better and more effective vaccine worldwide, and it, this it's it's been almost 99% suppressed, and you right. think that that should really Correct. continue. Yeah. I want to get to post-polio. So what is <laughs> post-polio syndrome? So post-polio syndrome um, is a syndrome that occurs in patients who had had acute polio, usually in childhood or adolescence, and then 
the if you look at the time frame, 30 to 40 years after they had their polio, they start getting new symptoms again. So they recover. Some of even played sports and stuff like that when they were, you know, 20 years old or 25. And then when they get to be 60, 50, 60, they start having new symptoms, which are fatigue, pain, and primarily new weakness. Wow. The if weakness you... comes back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with neurologist Dr. Burke Jubelt. We're talking about post-polio syndrome. So they become paralyzed again? Well, it's, it's a gradual thing. It's not acute like the original polio was. It's slowly progressive over years. But they do get n- new weakness again. So, um, what, Why? What causes that? Well, what's thought is that it actually, if you... When you were, had your polio, it was important to work hard to try to you know, correct the weakness, do a lot of exercises, and that actually seemed to work. But what happens later in life, the nerve cells that sent out new sprouts, new nerve sprouts to take over muscles that had lost their nerve input, um, are now dropping out those, new, those fibers that they had sent out. They can't maintain all those fibers and nerve fibers. And so when they start dropping out, then they start getting weak again. So in other words, what you've been able to do to kind of counteract the effects of polio as a youngster or as a young adult, basically as you age, the aging process kind of contributes to the fact that you're you're back to almost square one Correct. in terms of the polio? Correct. So basically, who's most likely? I mean, is it every person who's had polio who might get post-polio syndrome? It's probably, interesting enough, there's a, at least one paper showing it's that people who uh, exercise a lot. Really? Uh, yeah. It's almost counterintuitive, right. isn't it? They, they're over-exercising it later on in life, and that's probably contributing to why they're getting weakness, you know, a new weakness then. Um, so that's, we think that's the case, and that's why we try to teach people to use non-fatiguing exercise programs, and there's been several studies showing that that's beneficial. Give me an example of a non-fatiguing exercise protocol. Right. So you have to teach people, well, you want to strengthen, obviously, the weakened muscles. So you have to teach people to use like about 25% of their strength, you know, not that's 100%. Right, and, do, and then do short-duration exercises with repetitions. So that's what we mean by non-fatiguing exercise program. What happens to these people, though, over time? In other words, you run a clinic now that that basically addresses Mm -hmm. people with post-polio syndrome. Help us understand what you do in terms of recommendations for their lives and what are the complications that they face. So we do try to teach them how to do these non-fatiguing exercises so that they can strengthen, actually strengthen some of their extremities and yet not make things worse. You know, some people were out there they go see a physical therapist and they get put on an exercise bike and they overdo things and they can hardly walk that day and it takes them a couple of days to recover and that's what you want to prevent. Uh, we don't have any specific, say, medications right now, but like we're in a trial now with a, a medication called IVIG. Um, it's an immunoglobulin. So we're starting to do trials in post-polio patients. What's the thought there? What would that do for, for the patient? One, the thought is that there might, there might be inflammation that's contributing to the problem, and that would stop the inflammation. So bottom line is it is something, and you were not saying, who, who gets it? I mean, is it basically everyone who's had polio, or is it random? Or Oh, you said people who do overact, who've people been very active. People tend to overactive, right, and, and overexercise are more likely to get it. Um, obviously, people, you don't want people doing nothing, because uh, that's not good either, but you got to kind of meet a halfway point. That's so. Do does things like do things like physical therapy or occupational therapy, if under the right guidance, can those be helpful yes, in helping they, people adjust to they that? They can be very helpful in terms of adjusting and and helping them to stabilize and not continuing to get worse. So, in other words, they may have it; that it can't be cured necessarily, but they can live. Um, they can adjust to it and live a uh, basically a normal life. Correct. Correct. So is it the kind of thing that, as I said, at this point, is it, it's basically a hopeful, a hopeful picture in terms of people being able to manage this disease? Correct. And, you, you know, it would be interesting for you to come back and tell us a little bit about some of the research. You're involved in clinical trials right now? Correct. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this one with IVIG is the main one we're involved in right now, although we're also uh, looking at growth factors, and, and they seem to help in animal models. And so we probably, hopefully... We'll be able to 
try that eventually in patients. In the little bit of time we have left, just looking at the big picture worldwide, do you see it as a hopeful picture in terms of the suppression and, and conquest of polio, or do you worry about it kind of raising its ugly head again? Yeah, no, I th- it's, I'm, I'm really hopeful that we're going to be able to get rid of it totally. But, um, you know, that it's hard right now because the areas like Afghanistan and Pakistan are areas that are very remote up in the mountains, and it's hard to get to those people to give them a vaccine, and most of them won't take vaccine. Right, right. So that's the problem. But I th- I'm hopefully we'll be able to cure it. Well, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your expertise and this whole historical perspective on polio and now post-polio syndrome. My guest has been Dr. Burke Jubelt. He's professor of neurology as well as professor of microbiology and immunology and neuroscience at Upstate Medical University. Coming up next, we take a look back at the polio epidemic that hit our country in the 1950s with a personal story. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. The Global Polio Eradication Initiative, the largest private-public partnership for health, has reduced polio by 99% worldwide. But that wasn't the case in the 1950s in this country, when polio continued to be a major cause of death and paralysis for children and for others. Here to share her own story with us about her bout with polio and beyond is Janice Flood Nichols. She's a polio survivor and polio eradication activist. Miss Nichols joins us from her home in Lockport, New York, via the telephone. Welcome to you, Miss Nichols. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Janice, help set the stage for us. Where were you? How old were you when you contracted polio? My twin brother Frankie and I were in first grade in DeWitt, New York. Uh, Within just a few days, in fall 1953, eight children out of a classroom of 24 children had been diagnosed with paralytic polio. Within 20 days, 13 people in our little suburb had been um, diagnosed with polio, 12 children and one young mom. In the end, three children died, my twin brother Frankie and two sisters. They did not die immediately. They died over time, but of complications from polio. It was a terrible, terrible time, not only in our country, but around the globe. Yes, it sounds like it was very frightening. And at that time, there really was nothing that people could do, was there? Well, um, it was just before the 1954 polio vaccine trial. So once we got to the trial and the licensing of the polio vaccine in 1955, we finally had hope. The only thing that could be done when we had our epidemic was gamma globulin, and that's a blood component. And they had found from about two years before that sometimes if they timed a dose of gamma globulin just right, once a person was infected but maybe not showing symptoms yet, or was in an epidemic area but was not infected, they found that sometimes a dose of gamma globulin could either lessen a case of polio or sometimes even prevent the case completely. So there was something that they could do, but not much. And as you said, in your own neighborhood, how many children that you know of actually died from this? Well, it was not my neighborhood. It was my suburb of DeWitt. Okay. Uh, You know, And um, three children died. My twin brother died. I was admitted to the hospital on the night that Frankie was buried. And later on that week, my mom had a miscarriage. There were two other sisters, um, or two sisters. One, uh, Patty Lunson, was in my class. And her older sister, Cheryl, also died of polio complications, but not immediately like my twin. My twin only lived 61 hours from the time he was admitted to the hospital and died. Wow. Were children paralyzed? Were you paralyzed? Um, Yes, I was, temporarily. 
but I made uh, a miraculous recovery. I received incredible help at City Hospital in Syracuse, and that was the hospital for communicable diseases at the time. The staff had gone out to the Midwest to receive training on the most up-to-date treatments of polio, which were very drastic than what they used to do. They used to keep people in bed and cast them and splint them in the hopes that they could uh, decrease deformity. But what they did is they just decreased uh, muscle activity. So people ended up more and more deformed with more disability. So they learned in the 1940s that the best thing to do was to get people up and going as soon as possible. So as soon as I woke up, for the first few days, I had a very high temperature. They didn't know whether I would live or not. But when I woke up, my heart therapy began. And they used to bring us to a whirlpool room in the hospital where our therapists were oftentimes in the pools with us, moving our legs up and down, up and down. Some kids had to go to long-term rehab facilities. My family had the ability to pay for private daily physical therapy for me. So that's what I received when I was discharged from the hospital. That therapy went on on a daily basis until sometime um, in second grade. And at that point, the, my parents just re-enrolled me with every physical activity that I had um, enjoyed before I contracted polio. My motivation was to put on my ballet slippers. I had started dancing when I was three years old, and I loved to dance like all little kids. And so I was re-enrolled in that. Uh, I ultimately took a lot of ice skating classes and skated in shows. I even was a sub-cheerleader in, in high school for my brother's school, CBA. Um, I made a miraculous recovery, but I, I feel that the care that I received at Upstate initially and over time through my physicians and because of the love and support I had from my family and from my neighborhood, made an incredible difference for me. Some kids were shunned, but no one was shunned in our neighborhood. Yeah, you said some kids were shunned. Class. Now, this was going on throughout the country. This wasn't just hitting DeWitt, New York, obviously. Throughout the world. Yes. Right. So the kids in, in DeWitt were not shunned, but children and young adults in general were oftentimes shunned, not only in the United States, but throughout the whole world. Polio was something that was hitting hard throughout the developed world in particular. Today, it's in the developing world, but back then, it was the developed world that was really being hammered. Uh, the United States had more cases than any other country in the world, but actually, the highest per capita incidence took place in 1953, our year in Canada. Wow. So we were all being hammered all over the world. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with polio survivor Janice Flood Nichols. We're talking about her bout with polio and beyond it. So, Janice, during that time, you said it was 53. You were saying it was Late just... Late 1953. Right. Just before the trials began for the first polio vaccine. Tell us about what you remember about that time in terms of the vaccine coming out. Were you vaccinated following your bout with polio, for example? Okay. In April of 1954, there were trials that took place throughout the country in Canada and also in Finland. Just under 2 million children in primarily in first, second, and third grade, we were the kids who were most susceptible to the virus, were vaccinated or got a placebo and then had to actually receive the polio vaccine. Um, decisions to let kids be in the trial were made on a, a school district level. And in DeWitt, New York, because everyone remembered the, the epidemic uh, that took place just months before, 89% of the parents agreed to let their children be in the trial, either receiving the vaccine, a placebo, or as a control group. It was the first big double-blind study that had ever been done, and to this day it remains the largest vaccine trial in the history of the world. Now, this I was, for, was allowed... Sorry, this was for the Salk vaccine, the first vaccine. Yes, the Salk vaccine, yep. And that's actually a, a more refined version of that vaccine is the vaccine that children in our country get today. Mm-hmm and will ultimately be given to children all over the world. Um, I actually was allowed to be in the trial. I don't think today they would have allowed it because they know more about uh, 
studies, vaccine studies today, and they would not have wanted a child who had a natural immunity to one of the three viral types to probably be in the study. But they didn't know as much back then. And the other thing is I don't think the school district would have denied my parents. They had one child die. They didn't know if I was going to make it at first. My mom suffered a miscarriage, and people just couldn't say no to that. Of course. I was fortunate that I received the vaccine, so I didn't end up having to come back and get three more shots in the fall. So I was actually getting the vaccine. I needed it because there are three viral types for polio. I would only have natural, a national, natural immunity to the one type that I had. So I needed the vaccine just as much as other kids needed it. Did you experience, I mean, what was the, what was the feeling during that whole time, both before the vaccine became available and once it became available in terms of just people's um, sense of safety, you know, with regard to polio? People were terrified of polio. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Frankie and I were little, so we didn't understand all the fears that our parents and and our, our friends' parents had and relatives. But there were a lot of restrictions. We were not allowed to swim in a public pool. Uh, people thought that if you swim, swam in a public pool, you would contract polio for sure. We weren't allowed to go to large gatherings. Some kids weren't even allowed to go to church, especially during the summer months when sometimes polio was more prevalent. Um, they, they were spraying DDT in parts of the country where there were bad epidemics. Schools were closed. Businesses were closed. People were terrified because you could literally have a perfectly healthy child or young adult fine one day and perhaps dead or paralyzed by the next day. Like I mentioned earlier, my twin was dead within 61 hours of being admitted to the hospital. So it was a terrifying time. Yeah. And once the vaccine came about and there was a sense that we could prevent it, did you have some sense um, in your community or in the environment at large in terms of a sense of relief or, you know, a sense of perhaps exhilaration at the fact that perhaps we could prevent this from happening? Um, I think at that point, you know, our parents had just been through World War II. They really believed in the power of science and the power of medicine, very different than the skepticism that that unfortunately some people have today. Especially about vaccines. Right, right. Um, It's a small group of people, but they're very, very verbal and causing real issues and confusion for many young parents. But I think my parents felt... That, that we would ultimately be able to eradicate the disease. It's taken a long, long time, but we're almost there. Yeah. Uh, today we only have 14 cases worldwide uh, during 2016. It so is, we're going to get there. We are, and it's very exciting to see. Um, right now, I, I just want to ask you, we, we don't have a lot of time left. You are currently, do you do experience some post-polio syndrome, you know, a post-polio symptoms. Are they a, troublesome to you? Just tell us briefly about those. I call them more annoyance than anything else at my point. I'm very lucky. There are people literally back on respirators and in wheelchairs. I'm still going under my own steam. Mm-hmm. I pay a great deal of attention to what I should and should not do in terms of post-polio. Uh, it, it's kind of a weird situation because if you overtax your muscles, you can sometimes go backwards uh, faster and and have more problems. So I pay a lot of attention to making sure that I stay active, but not overtaxing myself to a mm-hmm. point where I end up in a wheelchair. I don't know what the future is going to hold for me, but right now I'm walking under my own steam. I have kind of a, a dull pain in my arms and legs all the time. But I take an aspirin a day, and that just kind of takes the edge off of it. Um, I've lost enormous strength in my hands as well as my legs, but I, I'm a swanky kid. And, and how old are you now? I will be 69 on June 28th. Wonderful. And um, I, just, I guess I just want to keep going and do as much as I can. I'm very thankful for my recovery. I'm a very, very lucky woman. And I have to use my fortune to encourage people to vaccinate their kids, not only against uh, polio, but against all vaccine-preventable diseases. I think that's... And I'm also very thankful to Upstate because if I had received care 
in a place that wasn't up on the latest techniques, I don't know if I would have the good fortune that I have today. Well, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story, sharing your perspective, and clearly um, your advocacy for, you know, to have vaccines available to people who need them. And as you said, for vaccine-preventable diseases is is crucially important today. I want to thank you once again for joining us. My guest has been polio survivor and polio eradication advocate, Janice Flood Nichols. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Hi. I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. Unpredictable, uncontrollable, unpleasant, or back into the flow. Well, folks, a week or so ago, I had a really tough day. I run workshops to train groups like boards and committees how to work together more effectively. And I was hired to do that. I'd had a half a dozen preparation meetings with the board pres and the executive director, sallied emails back and forth, getting clear about their agenda and goals and the workshop structure. Had a pleasant night before dinner with them to iron out all the remaining wrinkles. Heard almost the whole board of 20 would make the meeting and they were interested and excited about learning something new. So good to go. I slept well, secure in my prep, and confident I had something to offer. The first uh uh-oh was when the exec and I arrived in the workshop room, continental breakfast. Half the board already there, but surprise, very few people did anything to connect with me despite my milling about invitingly, and a number of blank unresponsive faces. Hmm. How'd the day go? Well, the first hour or so seemed okay. I was talking and they were listening and then they were practicing some easy new skills and triads and reporting back. Seemed okay. But back together as a group, working together, the first minute, one of the formerly blank unresponsive face people said, Enough of this new stuff. I want to go back to the old way. While the group didn't follow him right then, a little later, another member wailed. I just don't know how to do this. I don't get it. And I am not making this up. A little while later, threw herself on her belly on the floor in the middle of the circle, still wailing. Yes, really. <laughs> Nine o'clock that night, I'm in my hotel room having just had a, did you get the license number of that truck that ran us over, chat with the executive director? After reviewing the facts, including the Grand Canyon between what the group had agreed to, what we call the explicit agreement, and what it actually did, I realized the group's unspoken agreement with the president and exec and with me as their proxy, was compliance. Translation, sure, we'll do that. But then the group does everything to make sure it doesn't work. So their implicit goal was to keep everything exactly the same because change is difficult and scary. And believe you me, trying to lead a group that says one thing and does the opposite is not much fun. Why am I telling you this? Because at 9.30 that night, I discovered the antidote to unfun futility. Simply, I got on the treadmill, set my goal of running three miles, clicked off the minutes getting fitter, feeling stronger, slowly inching up the pace to be challenging but still doable, and then found myself in the positive, pleasurable, masterful feeling of what some psychologists call flow, an optimal psychological experience. So the next time you have a really tough day, give it a try. Doing something you value challenging and doable with feedback about progress along the way. 
I bet you'll like it. And I really mean that. <laughs> I'm Dr. Rich O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Next up, how the most challenging medical ethics questions are addressed today in a hospital setting. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. The intersection of law and medicine is often contentious territory, especially when it involves medical malpractice. But equally important are those cases that arise concerning medical ethics when patients are being cared for within a hospital or a like institution. Here to help us understand how these very thorny and sometimes murky cases are deliberated and resolved are Dr. Thomas Kerr, an assistant professor of pediatrics and of bioethics and humanities at Upstate Medical University, and Robert Olick, an attorney and associate professor of bioethics and humanities. He's also chair of the ethics committee at Upstate Medical University, and both of my guests serve as ethics consultants. Thank you so much for coming in. Appreciate it. So both of you um, serve as, as I said, you have an important role at Upstate University Hospital. Um, let me start with you, Dr. Kerr, and explain what that role is exactly. As a consultant. What is it to be a consultant, an ethics consultant? An ethics consultant is a service that the the university hospital offers. We are available seven days a week from 8 to 5, and anyone, it's one of the few consults that anyone can call in. So family member, staff member, physician, nurse, it's uh, open to uh, anyone who wants to discuss what they feel to be an ethical dilemma with their, their care or the care of a loved one. So you and, and Mr. Olick basically serve in that capacity. So either one of you could be called, for example, in one of those circumstances. Is that uh, right? Yeah, that's Mr. correct. Olick? We have a consult service that um, currently has uh, three faculty members um, and at other times have had a greater number. So we rotate taking call uh, according to the schedule that was just um, articulated. Um, and uh, we're available to anybody to get involved and try to help resolve disagreements, identify issues, clarify misunderstandings. Um, but it's also important for people to know that we don't make decisions. Um, we give advice, um, but we don't make decisions. The uh, authority uh, and the right and the responsibility uh, to make decisions uh, continues to rest within the confines of the doctor-patient and family relationship. That's very interesting. I've also alluded in the, in the introduction that there is an ethics committee. How is that the same or different from your role as a consultant? Well, it's different. So once upon a time, they had overlapping functions. So when ethics committees first emerged, and you could date that to the late 1970s into the 1980s, um, Ethics committees serve three sorts of functions, uh, policy review, uh, education, and consultation. But over time, one of the reasons that consultation has been taken out of the role of many ethics committees and is not part of our function uh, is that from a purely practical standpoint, um, it's challenging to get a committee together to deliberate on a, an ethical and, and challenging issue. Um, usually, on short the, notice, usually there's time. It's time sensitive. It's thing. time sensitive, and so having one person um, available to do that to respond, uh, it makes a lot more sense. Uh, and it, it, we also work sort of as a team. So one of us may be the primary consultant, but we work with each other, uh, and we have uh, monthly meetings to review the cases and and uh, see how things went. But now you're a physician, Dr. Curran, and you're an attorney, Mr. Olick. What are, how do your backgrounds, I mean, what does it take to become an ethics consultant? I mean, what, what in your backgrounds facilitates that? Well, for, speaking for myself, I, I, my job as a physician, I am in intensive care of the newborn. And that area of medicine is fraught with many difficult ethical dilemmas, particularly with the extremely premature infants. And I became interested in how do we make decisions in, in this ethical gray zone and uh, I followed up that interest by volunteering to be an ethics consultant at Krauss uh, back in 1992 and 
that was, was the school of the seat of my pants, uh, just experience. And then uh, I was uh, joined up with the, the university, and, and uh, Dr. Faber Langendoon is the chairman of that, or, or the head of our ethics consulting service. Uh, and once again, it's it's uh, there is no set pathway for how you become an ethics consultant other than being interested and uh, being open to peer review. In our case, on a monthly basis. And right. So so it's an important question that's being uh, debated and worked on in the bioethics field. Um, there are currently no standards, no specific um, qualifications or standards for how one becomes an ethics consultant or what sort of training or experience one ought to have. Um, there are some guidelines that have been developed, uh, for example, by the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities, um, but they're in no way binding guidelines uh, and they don't establish a path necessarily to becoming an ethics consultant. So it is, as, as Dr. Kern was just describing, a combination of uh, interest, um, self-education and training, um, and ethics consultants come from different relevant backgrounds. So doctors, lawyers, um, social work, uh, nursing, um, uh, those trained in philosophy, um, all relevant disciplines um, to bring to bear um, as consultants. Have there been a series of for want of a better term, best practices that have been established as part of this? In other words, your methodology and your approach, is there is there a way that um, you come at these kinds of dilemmas, these kinds of conflicts, that one could, you know, could talk about principles of approach? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, I, as I say, I think our... Our peer review, our monthly peer review, is really the 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 way that we. For example, um, it's not unusual for us to talk to each other up to kind of mine the individual members' areas of expertise. And if Rob has a, a question about what a certain medical situation means, he'll just call me and say, "What do you think is going on? How bad is this?" And if I have a a legal question, I'll call him. And we we we. we we, we, we're the super friends. We use each other's strengths to try and uh, deliver the most well-reasoned um, advice that we can. And as you mentioned, I think, um, Mr. Olick, that was very clear, you know, it was surprising to me in a way, <clears throat> is that no decision is offered, no pronouncement is made, but rather what? An advice? Um, advice or recommendation. So, for example, um, the vast majority of consults, we will uh, at some point during the consult, whether during its course or when it's concluded, um, write a note in the chart. And that note typically uh, gives an explanation of what we identified as the issues, what we did, and what our recommendation would be. Now, the recommendation is not binding, but it's there. It's been expressed verbally, of course, but also it's in the chart, in the note. Uh, for others to see as uh, time goes forward, uh, caring for the patient. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohn, along with bioethicists Dr. Thomas Kern and, and Robert Olick, and we're talking about the ethics of medical cases and issues that arise during hospitalizations. Um, so it's non-binding, but generally do the physicians who consult you take your advice? Is that what your experience has been? Uh, absolutely. I, I, I just want to add that, the, the, from taking it from a historical perspective, you know, even as recently as the 80s, the patients basically did what the doctors said, and it was a very paternalistic model. And as we flash forward to 2016, patient autonomy has really risen uh, to the forefront of what's important in making decisions, and so patients don't necess- patients don't have to do what the doctors say. And it's not setting up an oppositional relationship, but rather just noting the shift from paternalism to patient autonomy. And with patient, with the rising patient autonomy, that's really created space for ethics consultants to operate in because now we have two different parties trying to figure out what is the most appropriate way or reasonable way to proceed in, a, in, a, in, a, uh, in the gray zone. And it seems to me that a lot of what your work uh, addresses is sometimes this notion of mediating in some way between family disagreements of some kind around the care of a patient. And, um, you know, especially when they're involved in the surrogate decision-making of some kind um, with this whole idea of healthcare proxy and all of that, especially when someone 
their loved one has lost their uh, decisional capacity. So let's talk very briefly about a case and how you've approached it. Let's take a sample case, and I think that'll help illuminate the kind of work you do. Okay, so the the of course these are these are cases that have been de-identified, but they are they they have they have a basis in uh, cases that we've worked on in the past here at Upstate and Kraus. So we're we're asked to see an 85 year old man who had a complex past medical history, and he had been admitted to the hospital with an acute heart attack as well as renal failure, and he had undergone a trial of dialysis, but it was unsuccessful, and his kidneys were not going to come back. He was going to um, uh, they were going to they remain in failure. And his two sons were insistent on continuing aggressive treatment. However, his pastor uh, had had previous conversations with the patient before he was admitted, and the pastor knew that he would not want to continue medical interventions in the situation. And in addition to that, the pastor had uh, mentioned that there was a living will floating around somewhere, and we were then consulted. So what happened? Well, um, the questions that, that I would ask in such a case would be, first and foremost, I'd start with the question, as an organizing principle, who decides? Who has authority and right to make this decision? So we're told that the patient, or it's implied in the description and the account from the provider, that the patient lacks capacity. But we don't know that for sure. Um, it's something that... Uh, we don't assess as ethics consultants. It's something a doctor has to assess, but also has to document. So one question would be, does the patient lack capacity, um, and has that been documented? Once you determine that, uh, then you have to see who the alternative decision maker or surrogate decision maker would be. Um, so we have a, a couple possibilities here. One is you have the two sons, um, and in the absence of a healthcare proxy appointment, they would have co-equal authority to make that decision. Um, there is reference to a possible living will, and so we want to track that down, see if there is a living will, see if it is a traditional living will that sets forth the patient's wishes, or if it also serves as a healthcare proxy, which might tell us uh, more clearly who has uh, authority to decide. Um, and tracking down that living will um, is often a function of social work. Uh, working with the family, um, so you know they're important partners with us in the ethics consultation process. And then, uh, secondarily to that, equally important, but secondarily, it's not just about who decides, but what the decision will be. And it's often the question of what the decision will be that is the source of disagreement uh, among the people involved. So, bottom line is, you lay out what needs to be determined to move forward. But then what happens? Assuming a living will can't be found? Well, it's, so this is the, um, it's so important to have um, a family meeting where you have all the players in the room at the same time so that the physicians can lay out what they think is likely to, to happen in this situation. In this, in this case, the physicians felt this man was never going to recover and he was going to, he was going to pass away. It was just a matter of how. And understand why the sons, what is their motivation or rationale for continuing aggressive treatment? We try and switch the subject from what do you want to do to what do you think your father would want in this situation? Kind of have the, give them the opportunity to reset their thinking. So how did it end up? Well, in this case, as it turned out, the living will did in fact exist. It did suggest that this uh, gentleman would not want aggressive treatment. And in the context of a family meeting between the, the discussion with the physicians and the living will, the, the decision was made to transition to comfort care, which seemed to be, as Rob has talked about, honoring what the patient's wishes were. So what's the underlying bottom line point here? So important message that comes out of this case is the uh, value of putting your wishes in writing, which this patient did. Um, making that document available to others, which was a question here, and appointing someone as your healthcare proxy to make decisions for you and follow those wishes. So in this case, um, you would have chosen perhaps one of your sons, and it would have been clear who made the decision and what the basis for that decision would be to honor your own wishes. Very important information. I'm going to ask you guys to consider coming back another time so we can talk more about these kinds of cases because I think there's a lot here to discuss. 
Thank you so very much. My guests have been Dr. Thomas Kern, a physician, assistant professor of bioethics and humanities, and Robert Olick, a lawyer and associate professor of bioethics and humanities at Upstate University Hospital. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to HealthLink on Air. Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Minnesota poet and professor at Hamline University, Sheila O'Connor, gives us two short but shocking poems about the difficulties we face when working ourselves back from severe brain trauma. Here are Impact and Recovery. First, Impact. The surprise is nearly everything is gone. Words you write are scrambled. Words, yes, but not the ones intended. Inside your head, the steady sound of sea, the pain of brains swelling against skull, the urge to scream, not metaphor, but real. Everything is urge. You know the day, the year, the president, your name. Still, you cannot read or make sense of a sentence. There is nothing in your mind that means before or after. Nothing on either side of now. And second, recovery. Here in the company of football players, boxers, young hockey stars, you lose the will to read, lose the story, lose the novel nearly finished. The only hope you have left is the poem, a rescue boat of beauty, a prayer, a sound you follow out of silence, a sound you recognize a sound. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink On Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week for another edition of Upstate's HealthLink On Air. And if you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.